0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hey,
0: everybody. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program, more than 550 episodes and counting, are all available for free. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people.
0: You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. Alone. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, mm-hmm. what a struggle, you know? Mm-hmm. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Uh, just one person. Hi everybody, how's it going? Hello, this right. is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I have a bit of a cold. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I'm a bit congested. I could sneeze at any moment. But uh, otherwise I'm feeling good. I have John Ray on the program. He is a Whiting Award winner. He's won a Guggenheim. He's published many critically acclaimed works of fiction. His latest novel is called Godsend. It's available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. And we had a great time talking. He came over on a Friday evening, if I'm recalling correctly. We uh, we had a bourbon or two, and we got down to it. He's a wonderful talker and a good guy and an excellent writer. And that conversation is coming up in just a second. I Before I get there, I want to say... Uh just a quick thank you for the uh kind notes that I received over the course of the past week regarding the new partnership with LitHub. For those of you who did not listen to the last episode, uh my con- uh, conversation with Christopher Saicheg, the Other People Podcast has in effect by, uh, been syndicated by lithub.com. So, they will be uh you know posting the show and uh I think you know some Excerpts or uh, transcripts of certain bits of the show, and they'll be talking about it on their social channels and on their email newsletter. But it's a new partnership, and it's a way for the show to reach a new audience. And uh, excited about it, and very grateful to you guys for the good cheer. So, uh, without any further ado, let's get to the show. This is my conversation with John Ray. His new novel, One More Time, is called Godsend. On my dad's side, uh, my family's,
1: you know, been in California forever, I really since the gold rush. Um, uh, we didn't make any money uh, during the gold rush uh, other than to open a saloon in Placerville, California, uh, which in those days was not called Placerville. In those days, Placerville was called Hangtown. Where's Placerville? It's up um, on the border to Nevada, um, Basically, if you drove due east from the Bay Area all the way. Like to, to Reno? Um, almost to Reno, yeah. Like Truckee and like the Sierra? Yeah, absolutely. Way up in the Sierras, but, but still in California, but, but right sort of almost across the border. So your family, and it was called Hangtown? Yeah, the town was called Hangtown then. It was a mining town, um, you know, founded, I think, in forty-nine. And by the time these two brothers, uh, who were, you know, distant ancestors of mine, got there, they had a claim, but there was just no more gold to be found. You know, every, all the all the uh, claims were tapped out by that point. They were probably five, ten years too late. You know, these gold rushes went very fast. Um, and uh, they got there, and they were smart enough to realize there was no more gold to be found, but there were still a lot of people there looking for gold. And none of those people had very much to do with their time, and enough of them had some money to spend that clearly the thing to do was to
0: open up a saloon. So that's what these two brothers did, and then they did pretty well. Wow! So you know, uh, like that's that's an impressive amount of knowledge about your ancestors. That's 1849.
1: Like yeah, yeah. Well, this was this was uh, 1856, I believe. How do you um, know all this? Because uh, I was fortunate enough to have an aunt who. Um, was a very brilliant woman, but uh, someone who never really found a means of kind of exercising her intelligence. You know, she was a housewife, mother of three kids. So at some point, relatively late in life, she's one of these people who really became passionately interested in genealogy,
0: like Twenty Three and Me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, ancestry. unfortunately, com. she
1: didn't live to see Twenty uh, Three and Me. That would have, of course, fascinated her no end i'm sure she would love all this stuff that's happening now you know freaky as it is i'm sure she would find it fascinating but she just you know she was researching the old-fashioned way just going to archives and libraries and looking through um court records and you know she spent decades putting together this sort of mosaic that, that more or less tells the story of of our family from actually from scotland um apparently we're descended from horse thieves in scotland who were arrested
0: by the english my last name means thief in some like obscure mediterranean dialect is that right i mean i say that with like partial confidence because i used to live when i was just out of college in a basement apartment and my upstairs neighbor and landlord was uh, greek uh-huh parents like lived in greece he was over here for like law school and he was uh, you know amused that i was like sicilian or my last name is sicilian and he one night knocked on my door and had a book in his hands and it was like some sort of like mediterranean dialect book and he pointed uh-huh. he pointed to my name and, and there you read yeah, the word thief, thief. <laughs> that's right
1: i think we have this sort of collective mythology in the united states which would have us believe that you know most americans came here because they were highly principled members of a an oppressed religious minority that was seeking greater freedom uh, for its beliefs. And obviously that does play a part in the early history of the United States. But I often think that that we in the U S aren't that different from a country like Australia. I mean, or any of the Spaniards who initially came to the new world, you know, and then settled Mexico or, or parts of South America, you don't leave your home unless you have a pretty good reason. And usually that reason is an economic one or a legal one. Yeah, there's like a
0: desperation. Yeah, either way, like that's yeah. what I think. Like there's, there's something innate in, in the American character that is desperate. Yeah, and no, I think that's true. <laughs> or is that just is that like is that just human? And I'm, I'm... well, I think
1: I think anyone um, who migrates any significant distance from their place of birth must have some sort of desperation in them. Yeah, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. That like, can lead to all sorts of
0: interesting events. No, it's a, it's like, I think it's like the engine in a way you need that kind of energy. Yeah. Like you don't want human suffering, but like, I do think that like the, the energy of wanting to uh, create a new life and um, escape some sort of difficult situation, like you said, I, I think it can, uh, I don't know i think you i think I, I feel like that's like one of the big tragedies of the era that we're living through now is that we're closing our doors mm-hmm. to all of that human energy coming in and all of that new blood and yeah i don't know i think that's of actually a, it's a huge strength
1: oh absolutely i mean you can also flip that and say that one of the greatest dangers to any uh society uh when it closes itself off um is this risk of complacency and and stagnation you know and and a kind of almost sort of incestuous approach to one's own culture and society. And I mean, it's not for nothing that one of the fundamental tenets of the theory of natural selection has to do with what's known as hybrid vigor, which um, is an established scientific fact, which is that when you combine very disparate gene pools, just on a genetic level, and, and hybridize those two populations, the resulting offspring
0: are hardier and usually better equipped to survive. So like my street mutt? Absolutely. Twiggy is like going to be hopefully a
1: hardy soul? Absolutely. Oh, abs- I mean, dogs are a perfect example of this. Any type of mongrel dog is generally healthier. I mean... Think about all the people who have these pure breeds that they've spent enormous amounts of money on, who all develop some sort of genetic complication. You know, they have a problem with their hips, or they, you know, all of these purebred dogs um, seem to develop some sort of problem.
0: I, yeah, we almost got a Doodle. Oh yeah, because my wife's got some allergies, and mm-hmm. like we looked at it, and I was like, eh. Like it can be tempting because you bioengineer basically. Yeah. So it doesn't shed. Sure. There's but the-
1: human beings are very clumsy
0: at bioengineering, really, when
1: you get right down to it. We've had a lot of success with it over the years. You know, we've shaped dogs into something that they weren't originally uh, intended to be. I mean, if you can speak of intention with these things. But, you know, there are always side effects. There are always undesired um outcomes that are kind of built into these desirable traits that we want you know we're just it's pretty clumsy you know like yeah, you, say, you say I oh i want us. a dog that's 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 smaller than the dog that that we have so we're going to look for the smallest dogs of the litter and we're going to you know put them together and hope that a smaller dog results you know and that often works quite well but who knows what other traits you're 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 messing with i mean Genetics are very complicated, and, yeah. and
0: um, well, we used to have a French bulldog, Walter, yeah. who uh, choked on a bagel, unfortunately, and passed oh, away.
1: I'm sorry to hear that.
0: Yeah, but he, you know, French bulldogs were invented, I think, in the late 19th century mm-hmm. in, I want to say France, where they took English bulldogs and they bred the smallest, like they had, they basically found dwarves who had like the recessive gene where the ears popped up. You know what I'm saying? Like it's like it's like science fiction. They did this, and these dogs, they have to be birthed through cesarean section because they, you know, they're so like, you know, there's just it's like uh, there's just a lot that goes into it, and they do have lots of health problems typically. I thought you were going to say they took a
1: population of English bulldogs and they just bred them for arrogance. That and too. suddenly they ended up with some french bulldogs
0: well they they're like they, they became good companion dogs they were small enough to sort of like sit in your lap like oh they're incredibly cute they're, yeah but they like, like you know you can't do much with them and they, i don't think they can breathe very well no don't they, don't they have breathing issues yeah they're bra- it's called brachiocephalic the flat face mm. dogs right so they snort and they snore and oh uh, yeah i mean I'm, i've always been a guy like i mean at least in my adult life i've had active dogs i have twiggy now and then i had a uh, border collie before yeah. that and that's like the french bulldog in the middle was sort of uh, an experiment and having more of like a it's like a furniture dog they just like lie there <laughs> it's probably dangerous
1: to talk about dog breeds like this in a podcast because you're going to alienate somebody somewhere you know, you know? there'll have... be a passionate believer <laughs> a lover of french Bulldogs somewhere
0: who uh i don't dislike french bulldogs i'm just saying it's a different experience yeah for di- the record they're very cute they're very cute Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career. Writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also The Funniest by a Country Mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Um, I don't trust, like I was going to say when you were talking about humans and bioengineering, you know, you talk about uh, like cloning shit and mm. bringing, you know, there's talk of like bringing back the woolly mammoth and right. like some of that stuff sounds kind of cool. But when we start to get into this, I just don't trust us as a species to handle these responsibilities. I don't really trust us as a species to handle any responsibility.
1: <laughs> I'm, I, I'm really trying to think of a responsibility that we've, been entrusted with that we've handled well so far
0: yeah we're a mess
1: yeah i mean i guess we've gotten pretty good at cooking
0: well it's like we're clever i think human beings are clever but i think that like you know, I talked earlier about like america having this inherent desperation there's just something very fallible and corrupted about uh the way we're wired
1: yes well we're we're far cleverer than we are wise you know that's right i think that's essentially there's just a a um an asymmetry there and a, and, a, and a disproportion there i mean we just we're 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 just a bunch of precocious children do
0: you think we're gonna like what's gonna happen are we on our are we on our way out i think there's going to be an enormous
1: cataclysmic correction um I don't think we're going to become extinct anytime soon, but uh, often when there have been massive upheavals, um, ecologically speaking, um, if you go back through the sort of natural record, um, actually it's fairly rare that a species will go completely extinct, uh, at least if it's reached a certain population kind of globally. It's very hard to wipe out every last member of a species, you know, but there are often these enormous corrections that result in a far, far slimmer pie wedge than originally existed. You know, Um, they often um, have found when, for example, a new species is introduced to, let's say, let's say a a new species of rat is introduced to some island in the Pacific. Um, Sometimes that can, that can really lead to the full extinction of of native species, but usually there's a tremendous period of upheaval and then equilibrium is restored again. and, And there's just a lot less of a certain species or of all the species, you know, there's a redistribution. And I tend to think that that is what will happen with humanity over the next few hundred years but i don't know i mean i guess you know in a weird way things have become so dark lately that that what i just said is kind of an optimistic take on the future (laughs) which is kind of amazing you know if you told me this when i was you know 12 years old in in the 80s you know i would have uh i would have been pretty shocked yeah but the other thing about humans is we can get used to anything you know, we're we're very good at becoming dissatisfied with things that should probably render us content, and that's a big pro- part of our problem now. I think, as a species, but we can also get used to anything, no matter how, how horrible. You know, that explains a lot of relationships.
0: Yeah, that too. Yeah, it does. I, I was talking about that in the context of like the homelessness problem in California. Sure you know, just like getting used to seeing people sleeping in their own filth in the street. Yeah. And just these, like, oh, right. these tent cities now that yeah. have sprung up. Yeah. Like what we're tolerating this and yeah. just like accepting it as normal. And as like the only, you know, uh, just the way things have to be or something like it's somehow intractable. And just or bum- the natural order of things. Yeah. And it bums me out. And like, you know, it's, it's be useful for people to go places where this isn't an issue absolutely and to like walk around and ask yourself why yeah like why i don't know the answer like why why when you go to you know berlin or something that's not as uh it's not as evident not that Mm -hmm. these places are perfect but no not at all i mean
1: it's interesting I, i live in 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 mexico now i live in mexico city um and um my girlfriend, who's from Mexico and has lived her whole life in Mexico City, pointed out to me at some point not too long ago that there are virtually no homeless people in Mexico, and that is actually true. There are far, far fewer homeless people in Mexico than than in the United States, and the reason for that is obviously not that Mexico is some utopia in which uh, the poor are somehow taken care of by the state. Or, you know, um, there's greater equity uh, among the population in terms of wealth and various other things. It's simply that culturally in Mexico, family, and especially one's extended family, is far more important than it is in the United States. Which means if you have even a second cousin who somehow can't... Um, find a way to make his way on his own through the world, you find a place for that person. You know, you take that person in, if they're an alcoholic, if they're schizophrenic, the family will find some way of accommodating that person for better or for
0: worse. Um, whereas in the United States, that's simply not the case. You See, know? this is where like, you know, although like I, I'm pretty liberal in my politics, but this is where I find myself uh, saying things that sound like of the right, like mm. family values, the social fabric, the yeah. way that that's been uh, like sort of uh, diminished or fractalized or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's actually to our detriment. Well, I, mean, I, think, the, it, you, I think it brings advantages with it, but, but carries great disadvantages as well. And it doesn't necessarily have to be biological. It's just right. like that sense of human community and this community, care, yeah. care for one another and a feeling of uh, authentic connection. Yeah. And like responsibility to one another. Like some of that's been lost. I mean, you live in a city like Los Angeles. I don't know where all you've lived or if it's like this in Mexico city, but I think bigger cities might make it easier to sort of blend in, be, like be anonymous, mm-hmm. kind of feel disconnected from people because sure. it's so big and there's so many people and everybody's in a hurry. Yeah. And you know, I've lived here almost 20 years. I've known a few of my neighbors, like only one of them like became like a real friend. Yeah. Otherwise, it's like friendly at yeah. best. It is very odd. And that is, I think, a great change
1: that's happened even just in the last sort of generation or two or three. Um, I certainly notice in Mexico City when I walk down the street, um, people greet me who, with whom I've never spoken. You know, they've seen me around often enough to register that I somehow, you know, have some connection to the block and really, I think everyone on my on my block will will you know just say hello to me I'm, you know, and, and I've learned to do that. It took me a while to overcome my sort of innate American reserve and respond in kind in a natural way that didn't seem forced. You speak Spanish?: I do, yeah, fluently be uh, pretty fluently. that's good. It's getting there. Did you learn because of the uh, your girlfriend or did you know it before? Um, I I studied in Spanish in high school, which didn't help me at all. I, you know, I graduated from high school without barely being able to ask, you know, what time the bus leaves. Then I lived in Texas for quite a while near the border and, and spent time in Mexico then in my 20s. Huh. Um, but certainly um, having spent the last two years um, down in Mexico City and... Um, um really just being being in situations in which it wasn't an option to to sort of lame out on it and and be lazy um immersion's the best way right absolutely yeah i mean and by immersion i think one has to specify a situation in which you have no escape yeah you speak the language or you keep your mouth shut that's right that you just have to be forced to do it
0: because, you know, we're all lazy. We don't, we don't want to do unnecessary work. But it does get old. Like I've been in situations like that where I made like it, like I wasn't there long enough to make the advance to fluency, but I, you, 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 you're lazy, but you also quickly get tired of being like two dimensional in conversation. Yeah. It really sucks to not have language. Yeah. So especially as like a writerly person or somebody yeah. who like values, like being able to like be expressive and, uh, communicate it's just uh it's incredibly frustrating
1: that's yeah. right as as a verbal person and someone who values good conversation which you of course do or you wouldn't be doing this podcast right, right? um it is very frustrating and I, at one point i um ex- expressed this to to my best and at the time pretty much my only friend down in mexico city um the chilean writer alejandro zambra who's a brilliant writer. If you haven't ever read him, you, you really have to read his stuff. Um, but I said to him, God, you know, sometimes I just feel so stupid. I feel, I, you know, I just feel so much stupider when I'm speaking Spanish. And he just sort of looked at me and said, well, you are stupider. <laughs> <laughs> and he really, that's how he understands intelligence. You know, if you are unable to express a sophisticated thought, then you might as well essentially not be having that thought in terms of communication you know and he firmly believes that in languages that you don't speak well you truly are less intelligent than you would be in a language that you that you fully ma- have mastered that makes sense it's a very i mean it's a very sort of pragmatic way of looking at things but um what that means of course is that if you choose to live in a country in which a language is spoken that you are not fluent in you really are accepting an enormous handicap yeah. you're basically saying i'm okay with being a little bit dumber than everyone around me like the way i
0: I would put it is like it feels like you're less you exist less yeah it's, it's not not a flattening a, as you said yeah it's not like a complete existence you can't i mean like you realize like that's such a uh like integral part of of being yeah to be able to just shoot the shit with somebody on the other hand it
1: carries unexpected benefits i think i tend to i think talk more than i should and in an environment in which i'm not fully fluent in the language I shut up and I listen a lot more and I pay a lot more attention to things. And I become much more of of a passionate and committed observer. Um, And I think I never really realized how much I was missing out on um, before I found myself in a situation in which I was silent most of the time. Yeah. And that carries great pleasures with it. Yeah, it's good for writing, too, I think. It's very good for writing, but they're not the kind of obvious pleasures that one might think of when one thinks of sort of social pleasures. Um, It was very unexpected for me. Um, And I really think as a result, though you might not know it right now, I speak less even when I'm in the U.S. than I used to and
0: listen more. Hmm. No, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, like, I mean, if you're if you're enjoying it, and also, I think you know, anything that you do, often enough, ingrains itself. Mm-hmm. It's like practice. If the company is good,
1: it can be one of the greatest pleasures just to sit back and listen.
0: Yeah. Well, and like, and like, also, I feel like when you're living someplace that's not uh, your home turf, mm-hmm. it makes you. Uh, I don't know. It, it, like you, I, you have a different charge to you. Yeah. Like walking around. It, I love that feeling. I guess if you live there long enough, it starts to maybe dull a little bit.
1: But, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: I love that feeling of dislocation. Yeah. It, I mean, it sometimes it can really, everything can feel so heightened
1: and, um, you know, almost hallucinatory at times, you yeah. know, as though you're, as though you're microdosing some like particularly, um, mild but 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 uh vivid hallucinogen you know not that i've ever microdosed nor would i ever advocate for such a (laughs) for such a practice
0: i uh i finally got around to doing it i didn't do it enough though you heard it here first (laughs) i mean i just i i didn't it's like a sub it's like a sub psychoactive dose so like i don't i don't know what happened
1: I have to admit, and I hope that this is not uh, revealing too much about me. Um, but for a long time, I really refused to see the point of microdosing. You know, my, my feeling about microdosing was always: look, if you're going to take the drug, you know, why not take it? Why not take it in a way that will actually allow you to sort of hallucinate? I mean, isn't that the kind of the whole idea?
0: Well, but I think that there are medicinal po- possibilities for. Oh, I'm sure there are. Like, uh, there's a book by, I'm going to forget her name. She's married to Michael Shabin. I know that's like a reductive way to refer to somebody. Um, Waldman. Islet uh, Waldman. Islet Waldman. And exactly. she wrote a book called A Really Good Day, I think. And it's about mm-hmm. her struggle with mental illness, depression, and like taking these SSRIs and not having success with them. I mean, I'm, I'm probably butchering the, the details, but basically started taking uh, microdoses of uh, either psilocybin or LSD, and then basically kept a diary and oh, yeah, published yeah. this book. But I heard about that. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of exciting possibilities for uh, for the microdosing in that department, especially yeah. since I think the. Like, I'm very mistrustful of the long-term effects of SSRIs. Like There's, like, studies showing that they can cause dementia. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to, like, for people out there who need SSRIs and who are taking them, like, I'm not a doctor. Yeah, Uh, I'm just a skeptic, you know.
1: And we are sitting here drinking two fairly stiff glasses of bourbon, which I'm sure (laughs) can also cause dementia. I've had a long
0: week. Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Um, Although I once uh, gave my father, who was quite a drinker, a hard time for... um, for having an extra bottle of beer and um i was probably 14 at the time and he was i don't know um 54 and a a physician and i said you know dad you really want to think about the fact that you're killing brain cells by drinking that extra bottle of beer and he looked at me with such contempt you know the, the kind of contempt that only like a career drinker can have for someone telling them not to drink and he said son
0: breathing kills brain cells by the way that's not just drinker it's it's (laughs) physician yeah like i found some of the people like some of the people in my life that i've known who have been the most kind of callous or like what's the word i'm looking for like unconcerned about shit like that oh yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) are people in the medical profession oh yeah my
1: dad you know I don't think my dad ever took me to the doctor in my entire childhood, you know, like I would have an incredibly high fever, my mom would be freaking out somewhere and he would just be like, ah, just good for the immune system, you know, <laughs> he'll get through it, you know, like <laughs> it was really strange because he himself was a hypochondriac oh. it was it was quite a quite an interesting double standard there okay, so where are you, let, let's get to your uh, like, like uh, origins, where are you from um, well as I said, my dad comes from a long time California family. My mom is Austrian from, uh, a, a town, uh, a couple hours South of Vienna. Um, they're, they're both, uh, scientists. Um, they were both cancer researchers and they met at, um, an international, um, medical Congress in Vienna at the end of the sixties. Um, my dad was quite a bit older. Um, he was sort of the keynote speaker at this at this congress um he was a childhood leukemia specialist and my mom was sort of fresh out of um her phd program and he managed to dazzle her which he also often attributes to a three-piece madras plaid suit that he was wearing at the time and (laughs) if she also claims he was wearing some sort of silver tennis shoes i don't know (laughs) my father does not have a very good sense of style and this just sounds far cooler than he could ever possibly have been but he somehow convinced her to leave her family and leave Austria and, and come to the United States. And they both worked for the National Institute of Health in, in Washington, D.C. Um, in the 70s, which is where I was born. Uh, but I only lived there for a year. And then um, we all moved up to Buffalo, New York on the Canadian border. No, sure. Niagara Falls. Buffalo. Yeah. Buffalo, New York, yeah. I, I think of Buffalo, I think it's just freezing cold. You know, that's a popular misconception about Buffalo. Buffalo gets a ton of snow. Okay, that's what it is. But it's actually much less cold than a town like Chicago, let's say, or Cleveland. Not that those aren't extremely cold cities in the wintertime. Yeah. But the reason Buffalo gets so much snow is that it's surrounded by water on on two sides. Um, And in the early winter, Lake Erie has not yet frozen over. So this water vapor kind of rises up into the air and then turns into snow and then dumps itself on buffalo so what are we talking about how many feet of snow buffalo gets a lot of snow in the winter time it's it's actually a wonderful place to um to spend christmas because often you'll have three feet of snow four feet of snow at christmas time yeah now i should say that i left buffalo when i was 17 years old and have always kept my visits back to an absolute minimum, <laughs> but that has nothing to do with the weather. You got family back there still? or uh, My mom, strangely enough, uh, although she grew up in Austria, as I've said, and often talks about going back to Europe, you know, now that she's retired, my mom's really, um, my mom has a real soft spot for the underdog, um, Twiggy. and, uh. Twiggy, behave yourself now. Um, but, he, you know, I guess Twiggy heard underdog and is <laughs> that's weighing in. I have her trained, too, yeah. whenever somebody says underdog. I wasn't talking about you, Twiggy. <laughs> I can tell you're an overdog. Um, no, my mom just, I don't know. She's become this real advocate for Buffalo and champion of Buffalo. Because Buffalo's is a town that... Really gets dumped on by the whole country. It started with uh, Johnny Carson in the seventies. Oh, really? Yeah, he just—it became a joke. You know, he would always get the weather report, and you'd see like three feet of snow in Buffalo, and Buffalo just became synonymous with a depressed rust belt town that had shitty weather that no one would ever want to live in. Yeah, which was true at the time. That you know, the town was really in, in in a tough spot. But it's become a far more pleasant place to live uh, in the intervening years. Well, I'm from Milwaukee and Indianapolis. Okay. You know, Milwaukee's a lot like Buffalo. Yeah. The first time I was in Milwaukee, um, which I think was in 2002, I was on a weird little book tour for my very first book with Colson Whitehead. I was sort of Colson's opening act. Oh, wow. Um, I made him look good, you know, with my <laughs> awkward just attempts to read from my big, book, the shaky book. Like, yeah. Yeah. I really was. I was like, you know, I was like the <laughs> hack comedian that the headliner sends out to, yeah. to loosen the crowd up or what have you. But we, I remember we were both in, in Milwaukee and, um, I thought it was just so beautiful. And I really felt at home there. Milwaukee has these amazing old houses and it's, it's it's a town that was really wealthy uh, in the early decades of the 20th century, just exactly like Buffalo. Hmm. Um, Like it's like, just like a port town or. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, they were both, I think. um, Um, How should I put this? The success of both of those towns was was directly related to their location on on the banks of one of the Great Lakes. You know, Um, I mean, Milwaukee was much farther west, so, um, you know, maybe maybe Milwaukee was sort of earlier on in the kind of chain of trade that kind of led from the Midwest, through the Great Lakes, and then along the Erie Canal, and eventually the Hudson River, and then New York City, or across to Boston. Um, And Buffalo was right at the beginning of the Erie Canal, which for a few decades, was the
0: place to be in terms of trade and and commerce of all kinds. Mm. It's interesting to me how like these places can... You know, just like the rise and fall of empires and cities. Yeah. And like, I was talking to it's a- It's bu- quick. It can be quick. Well, yeah. I was talking to a buddy of mine this week who has been uh, traveling for like six weeks mm-hmm. uh, and has been all over the country. And I was like, so where you been? And he's like, oh my God, you know. <laughs> and I said, well, what were the highlights? And he said, like one of them was like Oklahoma and the other one was uh, Detroit. Oh yeah. And we started talking about Detroit. I had read a book, I read a book called uh, The Unsettlers by John Sundin, uh-huh. which is about people who kind of like, not go off the grid, but basically drop out of the system. Right. Try to reinvent themselves and find like, you know, sort of new economies. Yeah. And Detroit's like a perfect sort of like oh, tabula rasa for that sort of behavior. Yeah. Because it just got completely obliterated. But you talk about a place that went from being what, the fourth, like the third or fourth biggest city in the, in the country at mid 20th century sure and even like when i was a kid mm-hmm. i mean detroit and like the auto industry was you know like way uh i, mean, I think it was on its way out at that point but it, yeah. i think it was still much closer to its uh to its prime and, but also it was an unbelievably vibrant culture as well yeah. i mean
1: if you just want to look at music you know right motown and the whole thing uh, unbelievable stuff chess records motown so much of the best popular music that's ever been recorded in the united states was was recorded in detroit
0: and it just like you know past 20 years yeah obliterated Mm -hmm. or more than 20 but i mean you know what i'm saying like it really sort of like kind of manifested over these past 20 years and and it's been more dramatic in detroit than any of the other rust belt towns you know yeah i feel like
1: a town like milwaukee you know has had its hard times but it was never just sort of atomized and just devastated the way Detroit was, you know, which of course now makes Detroit one of the more interesting towns to visit.
0: Isn't it? That's no, interesting. Like whenever there's like, I remember like, you know, Prague had its moment in the late eighties, early nineties where yeah. it's like, Hey, it's cheap. Right. You know, but like whenever there's like the fall of a fall of an empire or like a, a revolution of some kind, it's like, go there soon after. Yeah. You know, and it's always like an interesting place to be. Sure. And, and like, I guess I'm, you know, After the crash or when a place has been obliterated, you have an opportunity for reinvention. Sure. The real estate's cheap. Yeah. And I think, too, people get a chip on their shoulder. People love their hometowns. Like, your Mm -hmm. mom loves Buffalo. And, like, people who are from Michigan, they have a vested interest in seeing it rejuvenated. Right. And then there are people, I think, who who go there and make it home and, like, want to participate in something like that. And I find that relatable. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's exciting, too, to feel as though
1: um, an entire urban center has been laid to waste, you know, and you know that something's going to spring up again, and it may bear no relation to what was there before. But, you know, that's what's so fascinating about um, a city like, say, Rome, you know, which, which saw... Successive waves of development, and and over and over again, would reach these these heights, and then and then implode, or be invaded, or be sacked. You know, I mean, this the city of Rome that we know now um, came about after centuries of essentially uh, existence as a ghost town. You know, after the fall of the Roman Empire, you know, there was a period of time when the city of Rome was really, you know, was overgrown by trees and vines and was almost a, uh, just a colossal ruin. Hmm. And uh, the same is true for Mexico City. I mean, living in Mexico City as I do now, uh, it's amazing. You really, you can forget for for even days at a time that um, the modern city that you're living in, the more or less modern city there, uh, was literally constructed on the ruins of the most ancient city in this entire half of the planet but then again you'll you know you'll you'll round a corner thinking of something completely different and suddenly there's some jet black pyramid in front of you at the end of the street that's just um you know built out of volcanic rock and and uh um that's that, that's that's been at the end of the street obviously before there was that street but for thousands of years and it's incredibly thrilling when wow. those moments where you, you really feel as though um you're seeing through these layers these sort of various sheets of reality to a to an underlying um story that's kind of in there all along, but that you that you didn't even notice. If you're looking the other way, when you turn that corner, you wouldn't even have seen that tiny little pyramid at the end of the street.
0: I Mexico think, City is really a, a fascinating place to be. I think that's the microdose talking right there.
1: I know, or maybe maybe a little <laughs> bit more than the microdose. I, I forgot to mention that uh, that I dropped acid before coming here today. Sheets of reality was the
0: was the cue. Yeah, <laughs> you well, know, that's the title of, of my memoir. Actually, <laughs> so let's talk about you as a writer. Like you grew up in Buffalo. Yep. Um, you, you sure seem, uh, like well-educated, like you had a good, like upbringing, education, smart parents. Sure. Went to, uh, where'd you go to school? Well, my parents valued education a lot. I, I did have some
1: problems. I, I, uh, I think I've dropped out of school three times in, in my, in, in the course of my education, but I eventually did, did stick it out. I, um, I went to Oberlin college in, uh, in Ohio, um, which is a wonderful place, uh, uh I think everything good about who I am as an adult um, probably happened as a result of the four years that I, I spent in that little town in the middle of Ohio.
0: Hmm. Why, what, what was
1: it? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, Buffalo, when I lived there, was not the most progressive place to be. You know, I don't think I knew a single human being who was openly gay, for example, until I got to college. And that's, I mean, you know, for the first 17 years of my life, not a single person. Yeah. Um, it's impossible to imagine that. Right. I mean, it's impossible Yeah. to, to I, I don't even believe myself, you know, thinking back on it, but that truly was the case for me. And Oberlin, uh, which I went to simply because it was academically the best school that I got into. I had terrible grades in high school. Um, was, you know, was, and I think still is one of the most progressive, colleges in the country um, uh, i was it was commonly referred to as the gayest school in america uh, when i got there around the time that i went there and that was just that in and of itself was the best thing that could have happened to me you know um, it was a very steep learning curve for me in the first month or two that i was in college i mean i remember being shocked by someone openly acknowledging the fact that they masturbated I was completely shocked by that. It was just some guy a year older than me who was living on my, in my dorm, on, you know, in the ha- my same hallway. I, I, I can still physically feel my shock and surprise that that was something that you were allowed to own up to, you know. Right, right. And I, I really can't blame my parents for this, you know. My mom was very... Um, uh was this sort of 60s generation you know almost a little bit too sexually liberated uh for my comfort right you know (laughs) um i distinctly remember being in a car with my mom and we were going to the supermarket i think and i was about halfway through high school you know maybe i was 16 years old and um my mom we stopped at a red light she reached over opened the glove compartment and inside the glove compartment was a box of condoms and she said John, you know, in her very thick Austrian accent, you know, (laughs) she said John, I know that you're, you know, I know you're having sex already. And I think it's a beautiful thing that you're having the sex. It's a wonderful thing between any two people. I just want you to understand the importance of prophylaxis, you know? And that really was one of the most humiliating moments of my, of my youth because I was so far from having sex. I was, it was, I remember thinking, God, even my mother thinks I'm having sex already. Um, So it wasn't her fault. It wasn't my parents' fault. But, but, um, I think just that part of the country at that time, um, it really makes me feel kind of old because our values have changed so much. And so many things have gone so horribly wrong with this country, but we are, we are more open than we used to be. And obviously, um, uh, you know, socially speaking, human rights have advanced. Um, and time that I'm incredibly down about where we are as a country, I think back on, you know, just how closed Buffalo was when I was growing up and how no one was openly gay, at least that I knew. Um, and just how far we've come in that regard. And it, it, it makes me a little bit less depressed. I feel, I I feel similarly,
0: I had similar blind spots, you know, and, and like lived in kind of a cloistered, uh, you know, I mean, Indianapolis back in those days. Yeah. Probably a lot like Buffalo. Yeah. I mean, in Milwaukee too, but, uh, and then had a, I had a similar like awakening in college. I went to Boulder and was just like, oh, yeah. Okay. College is pretty great. I think so too. I mean, if, if you're lucky enough to go somewhere good. Yeah. And also just, uh, like not even, I mean, academically, but also just socially to be some place where, you know, you can, uh, be at liberty. Yeah. No,
1: it's, it's the greatest gift. So did you know, I couldn't you... wait, I couldn't wait to go to college.
0: So did you, uh, go into Oberlin feeling like you were interested in, in writing or did you become a writer as a result or did it even, did it even happen later than that? Well, I, I, I started writing fairly young. I was, I was
1: fairly precocious with writing. Um, but it, it was sort of an interesting evolution because, uh, my mother read an enormous amount my dad read a lot when i was about 10 years old uh i was trying to write things and and um and then i had sort of sort of uh i don't know what to call it basically what happened was i was reading a lot of mystery novels and thrillers i decided i was gonna write a whodunit you know and uh i knew my parents were kind of into that sort of genre of fiction so i thought i was going to impress them with this thing so i wrote what i you know the first chapter was probably only a few pages long i didn't have much of an attention span in those days but i remember the the premise was which is ripped off from somebody probably agatha christie or something the premise was that this wealthy old man in this small town had been murdered but everyone hated this person so much that everyone had a wonderful motive to, to kill him, you know, which I, you know, not the most original idea, but, um, I think I was, I probably stole that from murder on the Orient express by Agatha Christie. Now that I think back on it anyway, the first sentence of my novel, which at that point was five and a half pages long and never became longer than five and a half pages was, uh, I think I can still remember it, old man withers was without a doubt, the most ornery old fart in the village. Uh, so I gave my parents these, these five pages, and uh you know very impatiently waited for them to read them and get back to me and you know a few days later, we sat down, and I very eagerly and impatiently asked them what they thought and i 'll never forget what they said. Um, my father said. John, your mother and I are very, very pleased that you're, that you, that you're pursuing this, this, um, this, uh, can I call it a vocation, this vocation? You know, we think that, uh, you know, what you've written shows a lot of promise and, uh, and and we're very pleased that you shared it with us, but are you sure you want to use the word fart in the first (laughs) sentence of your novel? (laughs) And that really that really traumatized me. It really, it really burned me more than it should have. I mean, I think in retrospect, my father was right, but, um, what that meant to me at that age was these adults don't take me seriously and they don't take what I'm trying to do here seriously. And then it hit me how long it would probably take, how far I was from a point at which I could write a novel that people would take seriously. I mean, it's kind of, kind of sad in a way even at 10 i was desperate to be taken seriously what kind of ambition is that for a 10 year old right but then i completely stopped writing for um uh eight or nine years and only after i'd been at oberlin for a while which happens to have a really wonderful creative writing program did i eventually start to notice that that some of the kids that i knew were writing probably poems or things like that that seemed to almost be taken seriously And once I realized that maybe we were at an age where that could be possible, what did I even mean? What did I even think that meant to be taken seriously? I'm not even really sure. Um, But I've always felt a little bit of embarrassment about doing anything creative and asking anyone to take it seriously. Um, But that really shut me down for almost 10 years.
0: Damn. Yeah. And then you got back on the train. I was a
1: sensitive, so I was a hothouse flower in those days. (laughs) Um, Now I've got, you know... Um, now I've got a soul wrapped in shoe leather, but you know, back in the day. Yes. Yeah, so then I started dabbling and, you know, I did the standard thing, took a couple of creator writing classes, you know, where you have to try everything out, a little one page plays and poem here and short story there. And I certainly read a, a huge amount. Both of my parents were big readers, as I've said, especially my mother, my mother, you could tell sort of halfway through dinner that my mother was impatient for dinner to be over. So she could go to bed and open up her, whichever penguin classic she was reading at the time. Like you could, you could feel it. It was, it was like this, you know, she, she kind of stopped listening to you after a certain point in the, in, in normally she was a very sweet and attentive woman, but when she was ready to go to bed and, and, and read her book, I mean, that was really when she f- most fully came alive. You know, I really think for a decade or two there, um, my mother lived most intensely when she was curled up in bed, uh, with her reading glasses on and one of those big fat penguin classics with the orange spine, uh, open in front of her on her lap. And I, you know, I must've noticed that or, or, or taken that in on in, in some way. And, and, um, so, so yeah, I, I've always read a ton, my whole childhood, even when I was doing terribly in school, even when I was, not in school when I, when I dropped out. Um, I, I feel as though I was never not reading and I'm sure that's true for, for most writers. And, um, it's, it's, it's probably the only thing that's really crucial. Um, and certainly, uh, without reading an enormous amount, I can't imagine anyone, uh, being able to write very well, but, uh, as far as education, I think that's the only thing that, that you need. I think it doesn't really matter where you went to school or if you went to school. Um, but you have to have that that very, not just the pleasure in reading, but 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 that kind of uh, greediness about it, you know, a, a greedy excitement that, that leads to, like, really close attention.
0: I have to correct my dog real quick. Twiggy no. What are you doing over there twiggy? So, what about like writers uh like what were some books like were there formative experiences for you reading that like oh, sure, yeah. re- like made you like say like I want to do this? Like that? Uh... Um,
1: yeah, absolutely different books at different times in my life. Um, when I was very small, I was um really passionate about Through the Looking Glass, which is the second installment of Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. I was never that into Alice in Wonderland for some reason, but I'd love Through the Looking Glass. It just has a slightly different tone. To me, it has a, a slightly darker, more kind of, you know, Alice in Wonderland, of course, has this dreamlike quality to it, but Through the Looking Glass has a darker tone that to me is really more more accurate, to you know, in terms of what, what dreams feel like to me. Um, I just loved Alice in Wonderland and I still, I mean, uh, through the looking glass and I still read it, uh, every year in the summertime, there's an old beat up copy at my mom's house. And when I'm visiting in the summer, I'll, I'll open that and read it later. I got incredibly into the Lord of the Rings, um, like every other kid in the world, you know? Uh, so I, I would really be lying if I didn't say that the Lord of the Rings, especially I think, um, the Two Towers, which is the middle of the of the trilogy. Uh, I, I can't think of a book, probably, that had a, a stronger in influence on me. Um, then later, I I became very passionately interested in science fiction and mystery novels, right at exactly the same time. Um, um, even though I, I really do think as genres, they're not that closely related to one another. But, you know, back in those days, there weren't that many... Sort of hybrid novels um, that combine the two. Now, of course, it's a very common thing. Um, But so there may be some books like uh, Childhood's End by Mm. Arthur C. Clarke. I love that that one. I I was a kid. Yeah, Um, and um, I absolutely loved all the Raymond Chandler novels. Although I think I was, I really think I was too young to understand a lot of the humor in them. But there was something about that style. It was it was both very hard boiled and and, and and kind of baroque in a certain way. Because he, you know, Raymond Chandler will write the strangest sentences just to get a kind of chuckle out of you. You know, he's really a he's really a kind of very dry, very arch, very alcoholic comedian. You know? <laughs> um and then later, um I remember in high school there were a number of books that we were assigned to read in English class. They were hugely that really they really got me, that really they really kind of knocked me sideways. Um, like uh Winesburg, Ohio by Sherwood Anderson was a book that I just adored. Um Fathers and Sons by Turgenev for some reason. Um The Sun Also Rises was was a was a big book for me. Um I also went through a period of, of really obsessively reading all of Ursula K. Le Guin's books um she was sort of the last science fiction writer that i became really passionate about um then i got to college and you know a lot of the kind of probably a lot of the standard books that 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 book geeks um get excited about in college like um uh gravity's rainbow or um uh italo calvino i remember um There's a novel by Italo Calvino called, uh, if on a winter's night, a traveler that, um, is probably not his, his best book, but somehow that one really got me. Um, it had the conceit that each chapter was a slightly different literary genre and that each chapter kind of linked up with the next, even if they were totally unrelated in in terms of plot or subject matter. And at the very end of that novel, um, the various chapters with their various titles sort of create a story within a story that's just a paragraph uh, made of little composite pieces of all the different things you've read. So it was a very, you know, a very postmodern book that, that um, at that time, at that age, you know, when you're 20 years old, just seems like, you know, the whole artifice of it, and the trickiness of it, and the cleverness of it, seems like the very highest thing that literature could aspire to. You right? Know? Yeah, I have a friend who loved that book. Was oh, it... really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like... I mean, now is good. nowadays, I would, I would, I would probably say the Baron and the Trees is is my favorite Italo Calvino book because it somehow has a bit more kind of heart to it, maybe than some of his drier experiments and, and 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 literary games.
0: Now, what about getting from, you know, college and being a book geek to actually trying to write your own book Mm. and finally be taken seriously?
1: (laughs) Well, it's an ongoing process, Brad. (laughs) (laughs) For you and me both. Um, Yeah, after college, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do with, with myself and, um, had a couple of peripatetic of years where I uh, lived in Alaska for a while, lived in Texas for a while, which what? is very important to, for me. Actually, living in Texas because Mexico was so close, and um, and that really kind of educated me about a lot of things to to go back and forth and cross that border a lot.
0: Where in Texas were you?
1: Um, I was in Austin for a while. I was in San Antonio for a while. And then at the very end, I lived in a very tiny town called Terlingua, which is right next to the entrance to Big Bend National Park, and it's really just across the Rio Grande from Mexico. And at that point, the Rio Grande is, a, is, is almost just a trickle. You can literally just take your shoes off and wade across into Mexico. Um, and that was that was that was a pretty extraordinary time that How I think back there? on a lot. How long was I interlingua? Not even half a year. Um, I'm, I'm still not exactly sure why I stayed. Oh yeah. I remember now it's a tiny town of about a hundred people <laughs> and, um, I can feel pretty small pretty quick. Did you go there to like try to hide away and write? No, no, I wasn't trying to write at all when I was there. I was, um, mostly just doing a lot of hiking and eating a lot of really great Mexican food. Yeah. And, um, Trying to, trying to find some kind of, in retrospect, completely imaginary idea of the kind of, not the far West, but like the deep West or the true West, you know, and just wanting to, to kind of, I I really feel as though I spent whole months there just chasing ghosts, you know, which were largely just projections of my own God knows what. But it was a wonderful time. I'll never forget it.
0: And then what about, uh, like, early attempts at books and getting yourself, uh, you know, finally getting yourself to where you're publishing?
1: Um, Well, I did start trying to write things towards the end of of my time in college, Um, but they were all very, very short things. Um, I suppose you'd you'd say poetry, I mean, most of of the things I was writing were were sort of these little compact paragraphs or a couple paragraphs, you know, prose poems, I guess, is what you'd call them although I thought of them more as just very, very, very tiny little short stories. I would have written longer things, but I just didn't have the attention span, you know, or the discipline to do it. And maybe my brain was still developing on some kind of, you know, neurochemical level. I'm not sure. Um, I do know that the first time that I was able to begin writing something that would eventually, um, that actually eventually did become my first novel, there wasn't any sort of eureka moment or any kind of clear correlation between work that I had done or things that I had studied or even books that I had read and the ability to do it. Uh, It almost felt like some kind of biological shift in me, you know, that maybe, maybe my brain was done uh, maturing in some way and then I could just do it. I, I mean, I mean, Certainly, the, the 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 most important epiphany for me was really if you came up with uh, even even just three characters who were distinct from one another and wanted things from one another and also hated one another in some way. That that was enough of of an engine to drive an entire book length narrative. You know, just if you have these characters that seem that seem. Plausible to you, maybe even real to you if you're really lucky you can kind of you can kind of just put them in a petri dish and let them interact. That's a terrible mixed metaphor, but we'll just go <laughs> with it and uh they may, if left to their own devices, sort of just just uh at least not write a book for you but create enough of a of a kind of i suppose they'll generate enough plot that you can you know if you if you find the right way to serve that material, you know, you can, you might end up with a book. Hmm. I mean, there was, these are, it's probably rose tinted goggles here now looking back on it. Cause I think it was a, a huge amount of work looking, you know, on a day-to-day basis. I think my two, I think my two major epiphanies that made it all possible were what I've just described and also the very sort of boneheaded realization that a book is made out of pages and that writing a single page in a day is not really that much work. And that if you just do a tiny amount, maybe not even a page, but if you do a tiny little bit every day, in theory, at the end of a year, you'll at least have something that looks like a book. It'll be enough pages. You could, you could theoretically call it a book, even if it's terrible. And that made, that made things a lot less scary to me. It it made it seem. I started to think of of a book not as one 300 page monolithic kind of text sculpture and more as a collection of, let's say, 301 page.
0: Many stories, but what about all the connective tissue and making it actually cohere? Well, I didn't think about any of that stuff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> details, Fortunately, because yeah. if I had thought about that, if I'd even known what that signified, um, I might never have gotten started.
0: But you, so okay, so that lets you get through the you know initial drafting process, but then yeah. you know on the on the revision. That's when you made all that up. Well, stuff. I, I didn't even really have a
1: sense of what revision meant at that time. You know, I, 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 I'm not the kind of person who plans things very well. And um, I just wanted to get started. I was at a time in my life um, when I began my first book uh, in which I had a, a, quite a string of, of um, rotten luck. I'd been fired from my job. I was living in New York City at the time, working at an art gallery. And, uh, I was fired from my job, kicked out of the sublet I was living in, dumped by my girlfriend and, um, you know, had four years to go until I hit 30, um, maybe had a slight substance abuse problem. Although that, I think that actually ended up taking care of itself when I, when I found something to do with my time. Uh, but, um, Suddenly I found myself with, with no distractions and no way to justify not trying to write a book. Uh, and I felt like like maybe I, I, maybe I wanted to give that a shot for, for quite a number of years at that point. Um, I had dabbled in all sorts of sort of creative pursuits over, the, over, you know, I'd say between the ages of 13 and 23. I tried literally everything that came my way except maybe acting. I never tried acting. Um, and I, I'd been pretty bad at all of them and, and writing was something I was slightly less bad at, although I was certainly not someone, no one pointed at me and said, Oh, this, this young man has promise. You know, (laughs) I, it was definitely, it always felt like I was kind of trying to overcome people's doubts, but that might be a good thing. You know, I think it does. It makes you work hard.
0: Yeah. But it, it goes all the way back to your childhood. It does, yeah. That's the through line. I guess so. But your parents seem like, because I always think like, uh, maybe I, I try to like sort of game out why I became writerly and wanted to like communicate and be heard and taken seriously. And I, like the only way that I can like break it down is that, you know, when I was raised Catholic, it didn't really take for me, but I was sort of, uh, not punished, but just sort of, uh, it was frowned upon. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to say, hey, this doesn't make sense. You know, it was just that that feeling. Just like when you wrote that story with the fart in the first line. Yeah. Where they're not listening. <laughs> right. And uh, man, that stuff stays with you. It had a powerful charge.
1: Yeah, it does. It does. Um, my mom actually um, has been very supportive of of my, my writing um, from the very beginning. But unfortunately, she's just sort of by by nature, by temperament, a very pessimistic person who, uh, who worries a lot, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, she's a Central European mom. Um, she has a lot in common with Jewish moms, I would say. Um, as a matter of fact, my Jewish friends and I often sort of compare notes. And, uh, um, you know, a, one of my closest friends, Nathan Englander, um, is convinced that my mom is secretly Jewish, you know. <laughs> he wants her to take some one of those 23 and me it because right. he just, he refuses to even consider the possibility that she's not actually Jewish because she really does fit the, uh, fit that stereotype. Um, she was always, she was always supportive, but, but never really believed that the world was going to, um, not crush me, you know, cause that's what the world <laughs> does. Um, uh, from her point of view, my dad was a little different. Um, my dad was always more skeptical, um, very hard to impress, very, um, sort of oddly com- competitive with me, um, about that sort of stuff. And I never understood that until years ago, long after he had moved, um, back to California. Um, Your parents split up? Is my that- parents split up, uh, when I was in college, um, uh, which I was pretty happy about cause they, they were fighting a lot and that's no fun, you know, for, for any kid to see, to True. see, um, But I found a notebook of my dad's. It was actually an old accounting ledger, those sort of green, dusty-covered accounting ledgers you used to be able to get in drugstores, you know. Yeah. Uh, Maybe you still can. In a drawer of his his old desk, and I opened up this green ledger, and inside were poems. He'd been writing poems for, for years and years and years that he shared with no one. Oh. These very sort of metrically precise, very kind of old fashioned sort of sort of poems um I mean, I have no idea who his um points of reference were as a writer um if I had to guess, I would say you know someone like w h. Auden or something you know that sort of sort of classic uh, style, you know, that owes as much to sort of 19th century poetry as it does mod- to modernism, you know. Well, I'm really making my dad's poetry sound like... <laughs> You're really selling it here. I'm really selling it here. I'm really making it sound um, like a very serious uh, endeavor. I'm sure it was serious for him. For the record, the poetry was terrible. <laughs> Sorry, dad. He's a great doctor. He's a, he's a good doctor, yeah. Um, but it was interesting to me to to have that discovery and to understand that maybe i was doing something that that he might have enjoyed doing himself yeah but he certainly never admitted that to me Huh. but i mean like your mom must be thrilled my mom is thrilled yeah my mom has always been sort of um um, i mean i'm just gonna say it my mom has always been my biggest fan
0: yeah, right, yeah, I mean, that's
1: what moms are supposed to be. That's right. Strangely enough, you know, again, she has this perverse kind of, kind of sympathy for the underdog. Um, you know, my my second novel um, is really of all the all of the five novels that I've read. I mean, <laughs> of of uh, yeah. That maybe maybe for, before we go any further, I should tell you, I've only read five novels. <laughs>
0: did I mention, when that. you <laughs> asked me
1: which books were impressed, were important to me, I think I did mention five. Those are the only ones I've ever read. Yeah. Um, no, of the five books I wrote, um, by far the the least successful one and the one that, that no one read and the one that the few people who may have read n- did not understand or appreciate was my second book, Canaan's Tongue, um, which is a really... Nasty, dirty, violent, gross book. And it's my mom's favorite. <laughs> I mean, it's about a gang of of slave profiteers in the decades before the Civil War. They're horribly racist, evil people who are constantly, you know, perpetrating the worst forms of violence on rival gang members. And it's just really a bunch of absolutely loathsome human beings and for some reason this is the book my mom keeps mentioning as her favorite Uh, i don't know what she's trying to really tell me when she says that to me i'm I'm still trying to figure it out i probably never i'll probably never stop trying to figure that out but she's always been great my mom is really a, a very supportive person and uh um yeah, I don't think I've ever talked this much about my mom well, in any I, interview. Your,
0: your impression of her is is dead on. I want to meet her. She sounds like a, it's like. Almost like Dr. Ruth Westheimer. <laughs> she's a little bit like she is a little bit like Dr. Ruth. Who, uh, her and accents kind of Dr. Ruthy.
1: And like, uh, how old is Dr. Ruth? Because like she was, she was like a cultural figure. She's very old. She's got to be almost hundred years old. I think she's in her nineties, but she's still kicking. She and like spunky. You know. Oh yeah. Oh, what a wonderful person Dr. Ruth is. Yeah. I think she performed a very valuable function yeah. in our. I think my mom would hate to be compared to Dr. Ruth because my mom is very <laughs> just the voice. <laughs> well, that's exactly what she would hate. She's <laughs> she'd be completely in favor of dr ruth's um take on sex and society but my mom's very self-conscious about her um crowd accent which is still pretty strong
0: yeah so uh let's talk about Gotson and john walker lind and you know how this all came to pass sure like how did it come to pass like what got you what got you hooked into that story um well um
1: Godsend is actually a novel that has an origin story. Uh, I don't know if I'd be able to really explain the the origins of, of any of the other books that I've written, but in the case of Godsend, it was it was pretty concrete. Um, I went to Afghanistan in 2015. Um, on vacation, or no, no one goes to Afghanistan on vacation I at least uh, not spring that I break so uh, yeah, well, you know it was spring break. I wanted to cut loose <laughs> um, no, I went to um, wait, let me make sure I have the dates right. I went to Afghanistan in two thousand and fifteen for Esquire magazine. I was supposed to write an article. Or I was trying to write an article about a warlord uh, named dostum d-o-s-t-u-m who was a important it was an important member of the northern alliance um, um and an important ally to the united states in our war with the taliban um i specifically was supposed to write an article about his sons he has these um He has these three sons who are living the life of the international playboy. You know, they're, they're spending all of their time in Zurich and Paris and Monaco spending huge amounts of money, um, dating Ukrainian models. Um, (laughs) and their father is this tribal warlord, you know, who, um, as far as I know, Has never been even been out of the country.
0: This sounds like a sitcom.
1: It's it's quite an amazing story, and um, um, I think it would have made it an interesting article. But when I got to Afghanistan, Obama had just declared sort of mission accomplished in Afghanistan and had withdrawn all troops from the country. They were still present in the country, but they were um, confined to various army, various military bases. Um, So there was no U.S. military presence in the country anymore. I got there about a week after that. So it was this sort of calm before the storm. Uh, Everyone knew that the Taliban were going to regroup and start uh, retaking the territory that they had lost as soon as um, the American and European military presence diminished. But my hope was that there would still be enough of a kind of lingering effect of the military presence there that I could get around. And I was able to go to a lot of places um, that you could not go to today, for example, anymore uh, with the help of a wonderful man um, named Noor, who um, works as a a fixer in Afghanistan. He takes journalists and and other sorts of operatives around the country. Um, He's kind of a combination interpreter guide security expert um driver and person who keeps you from going crazy and or (laughs) getting your head cut off yeah um an amazing guy he loves drinking whiskey he loves rihanna um who doesn't who doesn't of course i mean i mean i've yet to find a part of the world where you can't at least find somebody who loves rihanna and that's as it should be that's right
0: um wait what is my dog eating i want to hear the rest of the story like oh, you're in afghanistan you're with yeah. uh what's his name your guide slash newer yeah n o um
1: i'm not even allowed to, to say what his last name is not that it would matter he wouldn't even allow me to take uh a picture of him without um part of his face covered but for good reason actually sure but, um Oh God, I have, I have dozens of stories about him. Each stranger and and more amusing in, in in its way than than the last. But so I was trying to get to a part of the country that it, I was unable to get to. It turned out just to be impossible. Um, there are all sorts of there were all sorts of um, maybe there still are. There were all sorts of parts of the country. Um, that were in federal hands during the day and that as soon as the sun went down reverted into taliban control so that made it very tricky to travel of course because sometimes we were traveling very long distances um hundreds of kilometers a day um to make a long story short we were unable to get to the parts of the country that I needed to get to, to write the article that I'd been sent to Afghanistan to write. Um, But I wanted to go to Afghanistan for all sorts of reasons, among which the fact that I'd become very interested in the story of John Walker Lind, the so-called American Taliban, who for a few years after uh, 9-11 was, was really quite infamous worldwide and certainly famous and very hated in the United States um, So, since we couldn't do what we originally had planned to do, we couldn't get to Dostum and to the part of uh, Afghanistan that he was in at the time. Um, I decided that we should start investigating kind of the route that John Walker Lind had taken through Afghanistan in his time as a recruit and then later as a soldier in the army of the Taliban. And try to find people who had known him, and and ask them what their impressions were. And um, we had some luck with that, not as much as we'd hoped. But one day we were in a, a small town about an hour north of Kabul, and we were talking to this old man who was very chatty, very very sociable, very willing to talk. Um, and I asked him through my interpreter whether he had known the American boy who had served in the in the Taliban army. And he answered immediately, oh, yes, of course, I know all about the American boy. I know, I could tell you all sorts of stories, and I also know about the American girl. And we were kind of, you know, we were all kind of shocked by that. And and I thought he'd made a mistake, and actually, Noor uh, also thought that he'd misspoke and tried to correct him and said, oh, I think you mean the American boy. And the old man was very firm and very clear, and he said, no, 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 I mean the American girl. And we ended up talking to him for quite a long time. Um, and he gave us a certain amount of information. He claimed that there had been a girl who was either in her early twenties or in her teens, um, who at one point he insisted was American. And then at another point he described her as, as British. Um, it wasn't entirely cl- clear whether he knew the difference actually between the two. Um, who he claimed had been active in the uh, armed forces uh, mm-hmm. fighting in some capacity for the Taliban. Um, but as, as I said, he was a little bit contradictory and the information he gave us was sort of patchy. But we immediately decided that that was what we were going to try and, and get more information about in the few days that were remaining. This was kind of towards the end of my time there. Um, and we managed to find some other people who had at least heard rumors about this supposed girl. But at the end of my time in Afghanistan, I realized I, I had nowhere near enough reliable information to write an article, let alone, I don't know, a nonfiction book about, about this subject. And I really felt that a book was what it deserved because what a bizarre story to hear. Yeah. Um, I mean,
0: John Walker Lynn alone, right? But, uh, i I was i latched onto that too i remember when that was in the news and you know what was that 2003 2004 when i'm trying to well john walker lynn was actually taken into
1: custody um only three months after 9-11
0: oh really okay so yeah
1: so it was right after yeah but he was in the news for a long time because um at first they were trying to try him as a terrorist which eventually um was shown not to hold any water at all because um, at the time that John Walker Lind had joined the Taliban, the Taliban weren't even on the state department's lists of um, the Taliban weren't even on the state department's list of enemies of the state. Hmm. Um, We were actually trying to negotiate a deal with them to run a pipeline through the country from Uzbekistan down to Pakistan to where we could get our oil tankers um, to you know i mean we were we were trying to do business with the taliban we weren't trying to fight them yeah. it was only nine eleven, and and when it came out that they'd been sheltering al-qaeda that they became uh enemy number one for the u.s and we declared war on them so he this was a kid who just found himself really in the wrong place at the wrong time i, mean, I, can't, I can't even think of another example that, that so perfectly illustrates how quickly global alliances can shift uh in our modern era and 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 um um, obviously, there are millions of refugees who would serve as, a, as an excellent illustration of that as well. But what makes John Walker Lind interesting is that he was just a regular kind of upper middle class kid from Northern California, not of Muslim background, who um, converted to Islam, um, gradually became radicalized, um, but never had, as far as anyone can determine, any Sort of intention of um, waging war against uh, the United States or against American nationals. Um, he just thought he was fighting in a Muslim army to protect a um, a very idealistic and very morally upright, State from aggression on the part of various warlords and bandits, essentially um, the group of people who later came to be called the northern alliance i mean this is a very involved um and not very articulate history lesson but um, at the end of my time in Afghanistan, it was very clear to us that I didn't have enough even to write an article. And I had to tell my editors at, at Esquire that I was going to be coming back to the U S really without anything to show for my time. Um, but at some point it kind of hit me that I'm really not a journalist. First and foremost, I'm a novelist and the way to do what I had learned in Afghanistan justice was, was, was so clear and that, in fact, the gaps in what I knew about this American girl who had fought with the Taliban who may very well be apocryphal. this just may simply be a legend, you know so many legends spring up in wartime. sure, um, but those gaps were kind of an advantage for me because that was the place where 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 the novel could could kind of begin, and then here we are, and then here we are, Brad. <laughs>
0: um well it's just it seems like a story and subject matter and this happens often i think especially with people who i think who are deeply invested in literature who read a ton and who just have uh like uh, a lot of natural talent and a good antenna is like the way i usually phrase it but Mm -hmm. you know you've written a novel that i think speaks to the present moment, even though it's recalling something that happened almost 20 years ago. And that is like, it's a, how does a person become radicalized? And how do you take somebody who, you know, in one context, like you said, normal suburban kid from like Marin County, wasn't he like John Walker land? That's right. And then all of a sudden he's in the middle of nowhere in some village in Afghanistan fighting for an Islamic army, you know, like it's just, yeah. Talk about an adventure. Talk about a kid who wanted to be taken seriously. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. The like, ultimate example of a kid who wanted to be taken seriously. Yeah. But it's just, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of resonance and I don't know. I can't imagine that was like um, intentional, you know, that you were trying to, to say something about the moment that we were in or headed towards. But well, that's you, so
1: hard to do and so dangerous to try to do. Yeah. You know, I think all I was doing was trying to do right by a fragment of information that I'd been lucky enough to, to hear and, um, that I thought might make a good novel, um, Mm -hmm. and just might make a good, a good yarn really, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I certainly never really thought about the political implications other than other than trying very hard not to contribute to all the misrepresentations of of Islam that already uh, abound in popular culture in this country you know I think it's good to have a little bit of fear in you when you're writing a novel um, about adding to all the various distortions that are that are peddled um, for commercial reasons or simply because, um, a writer might be a little bit lazy or might be willing to avail him or herself of various preconceptions that the reader might have. It can make your job a lot easier as a writer. If you, um, if you avail yourself of the preconceptions we all have, you know, it can save you a lot of a lot of work, you know. You can paint with a broad brush, very quick strokes, and uh, you know, if you're writing about a Nazi, I mean, you don't really have to say very much, you know. Right. You say they're a Nazi. We all have this kind of idea of what a Nazi was, mostly probably through watching Hollywood movies or something, you know. M- probably some of that might be accurate, some of it might not be. And if you if you say Muslim terrorist everyone has an image that comes to mind that maybe they got from cnn or maybe they got from fox or you know if they're really unfortunate they got from john updike's novel terrorist (laughs) um and you know what what i think keeps a writer from not being lazy in that way is the fear of writing something that's going to become part of the problem it's very easy to do that
0: yeah you can do that even when you have
1: better intentions absolutely you can do that if you're just writing about you know 20 somethings dating in new york (laughs) you know you can become part of the problem any old way you You can can contribute to distortions and misrepresentations of um
0: the way things are no matter what you're writing about well i don't think you did that in your book, and uh, it's been a joy to uh, talk with you. You're a great talker and uh, a live mind, and I just uh, appreciate you. Uh, for people listening, there's been a lot of uh, scheduling mishaps trying to get this conversation in place, and John has been um, extremely um, kind in you know accommodating my crazy schedule. So, appreciate. Well, Brad, I heard you had good bourbon. Yeah, right. <laughs> It's a, By the way, we're recording this on a Friday night. Um, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but it's like bourbon, a long week, but a very excellent conversation, and I appreciate it. Great way to start the weekend. Thanks, Brad. Okay, that is John Ray. His new novel is called Godsend. It's available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. John Ray, great conversationalist. And uh, one of our better writers, for sure. Go get his book. Again, it is called Godsend Out There from FSG. If you want to find him on the internet, it's johnray.net. He's on Twitter at john underscore ray. I sort of like the, I feel like I have more gravitas with this cold. I don't know. My baritone. Is it a baritone? I don't even know what it is. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thanks to Tiger and My Tank for the uh, theme song music. Or the interstitial music, is what I mean to say. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget about the free Other People app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. And remember with this new LitHub partnership nothing changes a new episode of the Other People podcast airs every Wednesday it's free you can get it on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio wherever you know wherever you get podcasts the show's official website remains the same otherppl.com the show's twitter at @otherppl it's all the same it's just uh, it's also going to be on LitHub and we're going to join forces that's what it is it's a joining of forces So my my son has this cold My wife has this cold I apparently now have this cold It's okay I feel okay I'm just like a little weary But whatever Just kind of annoyed I feel like I get sick right around Christmas That's That's like my time That's when I like let myself Get a cold or something Not that I have control over it But you know what I'm saying It's like seasonal affective disorder I don't know what it is. It's like something, it's tied to Christmas. I'm blaming Christmas. It's the war on Christmas. Who's the John Walker Lind of the war on Christmas?